Nicole Vibin Sadaka, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Byron. Um, it has been customary during the State of the Union address, I think it goes back to Ronald Reagan, that the president at some point will say the State of the Union is strong. When you examine the current state of American democracy, does that perfunctory statement ring hollow? I would say the state of the American democracy is challenged. And let me just clarify that because we see two sides to that. And I think it's really important that we have the nuance on it. We, the organization that I'm with, Freedom House, takes a look every year in our Freedom in the World report at every country and territory around the world. And what we have seen is that the United States has been in a decline since 2010. And out of 100 points, we've dropped 11 points. We were at a 94 and now we're at an 83. There is no doubt that we are seeing a democratic challenge and crisis in the United States. And this has been declining for some time under both Democratic and Republican administrations. It accelerated under Donald Trump, but we are seeing some real challenges to our democracy. So the state of the union and the state of the de democratic um, uh, landscape is challenged. And I wanna say, and this is because I work for an organization that looks at democracy and human rights and freedom around the world, we also are a nation that has institutions. We've seen the institutions hold in many cases. We've seen people step up. We've seen laws hold. We've seen judicial processes. We have the tools to address this decline. And by my saying that, I don't want to paint the picture that it's rosy at all. <laughs> what I want to paint the picture is we have some very, very real challenges and we have institutions and we need to use them in order order to address that decline, because we've got to turn it around as soon as possible. You mentioned that, that Freedom House looks um, and, and rates democracy. I believe um, you had, I mean, it was like the, a downward trajectory. Is what, is, is, that would be accurate what you had in the United States since 2010. It's been on a downward trajectory. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So we, we are witnessing many traits, in my view, uh, that undermine democracy. Um, there's a certain polarization that enables anti-democratic behavior. There's a rise in uh, political violence. Um, you mentioned institutions that we have, but we, we distrust a lot of those governing institutions. How do you see that? I think, Byron, you've named a number of the issues that we're extremely concerned about. Rising political polarization and extremism, the willingness to use political violence or the threats of political violence are a very, very real threat to democracy. Obviously, in January 6th, um, we saw a very real use of political violence to try and interrupt and disrupt one of the most important and sacred processes that we have, which is certifying a free and fair election, which we did have. We're also seeing partisan pressure on the electoral process, people and individuals that want to um, in take a process which is supposed to be free and fair and open and manipulate it for outcomes that suit them. Um, we see, you know, we see bias and dysfunction in our criminal justice system. These are all things which are eroding the quality of democracy as we're seeing it. Um, and I think that there is unquestionably a growing mistrust, and we're seeing that increasingly uh, in younger generations, I would say, 
um, a growing mistrust in democracy as a system that can deliver. What we want, though, the American people to understand is democracy has never been, certainly not in our nation, has never been a perfect system. But what democracy does have is the ability to self-correct and to put power in the hands of the people to push the system to change. That's something that exists in no other system, but it really is incumbent upon our leaders and upon our citizens to take that power back and to reclaim the democratic trajectory of our nation. Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that um, we do have those self-correcting mechanisms, but at the same time, uh, the founders of this nation, uh, in an attempt to uh, uh, appeal to those who were uh, suspect about the new constitution, um, gave a lot of deference when it comes to elections to the states. So as a result, in the 21st century, in Texas, you can be a poll watcher and while carrying a gun. There's something about being a poll watcher and carrying a gun that seems undemocratic to me. I'm, I don't I don't mean to jest, but I think you take my point. Absolutely. What we what we have said is our democratic process, particularly our electoral process, has to be one where everyone has the ability to participate, where there are no barriers to entry for people um, to be able to exercise what is a fundamental democratic right. There should be no intimidation at the polls. And that looks, a, that looks uh, there are a lot of ways that people can intimidate at the polls. And we're concerned about intimidation at the polls and, and have called that there should be none in, in any way, shape or form. Um, and that we have um, poll workers, electoral officials that are nonpartisan, that are well-trained, which is what we see in so many parts of our country, and that we inc- that we increase the protection for those individuals. What we have seen in all of our recent elections, we have great poll workers, great electoral officials all throughout our nation. They are well-trained, long, hardworking, and Um, and quite often underpaid or doing it in addition to their other work. And there's increasing threats to them around the nation. And we have to strengthen the legal protection for those individuals because they are doing the work of democracy. And it is essential that they are protected in doing what is ultimately serving all of the people of our nation. You know, it's rather ironic that you and I are having this conversation about democracy. And I believe in March, it was the second summit for democracy that the Biden administration held. It just seems rather ironic that we would be having this democracy summit um, when the world is not only are we aware of our democratic challenges because we are who we are, the world is aware of our democratic challenges and and the irony of that. So, um, how how do you square that? I mean, are, are we are we in a position to talk about democracy right now to the world? That it's a great it's a great point. I believe it's not a question of whether we talk about democracy. It's a question of how we talk about democracy. I believe that every democratic nation has to be talking about democracy at home and abroad. But let me unpack that a little bit. Every democracy needs to be very honest and very humble about its very, its real shortcomings. We have them, every democracy in the world has them, and we need to be able to say, you know what, 
We're not going to hide under, you know, we're not going to hide and say, oh, we're perfect. And we're running around the world talking about democracy because we are perfect. Quite the contrary. Anyone who reads the history books or opens the newspaper knows that the United States is not a perfect democracy. But And so we have to be humble about that very real, both our track record and our current challenges. But we have to be confident in the principles of democracy, right? In the principles of democracy. And if you go back and you look, what did Dr. King say? What did, what did Frederick Douglass write about? They wrote about the principles of our nation and how far we are from reaching it. So while we're humble about where we are definitively still struggling, where we are definitively falling short, we also have to be confident that there are principles which are lofty, hard to reach, but that's what our aim is. And when we go around the world, we're not going around the world because we are perfect. We're going around the world because we know that people in other countries are struggling under the boot of authoritarianism. And we want to lend our voice in solidarity with them and to say, we see you and we care about you. And we lend our voice to you as you are struggling to have any voice in your society. We are going to work on our home <laughs> to, to get closer to reaching those principles. And we're going to stand in solidarity with you as you struggle to get any progress towards those principles. And those things to me that are not inconsistent. It's that humble confidence, humble about our history and confident in about in the principles that allows us to be in conversation and in solidarity with others around the world. I'm um, thinking right now, listening to your, your, your last uh, answer, I'm thinking of uh, James Madison, Federalist 51, yeah. when he writes about ambition must be made to counteract ambition. Um, but recent ambition, I'm, 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 I'm thinking of uh, a, a conservative Supreme Court, recent ambition got its Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County versus Holder. Voting Rights Act marked the first time that, um, that America literally protected the rights of every individual. Um, would that be an example of that downward trajectory that Freedom House um, has done in its rating of just, you know, making voting more difficult for certain groups? I will say that is among the issues that our team is looking very, very closely at. Our concern is that any any undue constraint or barrier for people to participate in the electoral system um, is an infringement on our democratic values. And that is um, and that is core to who we are. I think that there have been a lot of conversations in which people have said, well, we're more concerned about security. We're more concerned about other issues. I don't see those at odds with each other. I believe that we can continue to have a system which is free, fair, and secure without the limitations on anybody's right to vote or anybody's um, uh, or, or or put any hurdles in the way. And we know the history of our nation, right? There have been very intentional and very blatant attempts to limit people's access to the ballot box. And we have to be vigilant as a nation to, um, to ensure that there are no um, impediments and that in any attempt to try and strengthen our system or to or to introduce you know reforms to our system that the primary concern that we have is that every person has every ability to make it to the ballot box and to have their voice counted
is giving your work at Freedom House, is, is democracy in general something that historically speaking has a shelf life and authoritarian rule in some form reflects the default position that people uh, embrace? That's a great question, Byron. If we step back and look at the trajectory over years, um, so let me start by saying we have seen in the last 17 years a decline in, in democracy around the world. That is deeply concerning to us. But if we also step back and we look, let's look at, take a 50-year view, let's take a 100-year view, the trajectory is in the direction of democracy. It is in the direction there are more people that are calling for it. There are people who are going to the streets and we see that around the world. So I'm not concerned that democracy has a shelf life. What I am concerned is that it is facing threats that we need to take more seriously and that we that we need to name. Let me just throw out some of those threats. One, authoritarian nations around the world are as serious in their fight against democracy as they ever have been. So that means China, Russia, other nations are actively trying to undermine our democracy. They are actively trying to, to influence elections in our country and around the world. And we've got to see that as a threat to our nation, as our very existence of our core. We also know that a lot of democracies have not delivered for their citizens. They have not delivered on the protection of rights. They haven't they haven't delivered on the economic growth that some people have rightfully wanted. And so there's a waning trust. And we talked about that earlier, but there's a waning trust in democracy, which I would say is a waning, more appropriately placed as a waning trust in the governance and the delivery than in the system itself. And so what you have is those two things coming together. They're very real external threats. There's, there's this shortage of delivering. And then you have in democracies, and we're seeing it in our own, populist leaders, illiberal leaders who are coming to power through democratic means and then choosing to challenge or dismantle or undermine the very system that brought them to power and that that is a real challenge that we're seeing in a lot of nations. And the reason I pose that is because the the the, the fable. I'm not sure if it's actually it's accurate or not, but the fable was that um, one of the benefits of being led by Mussolini is that he made the trains run on time. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the the point being is that um, and what is it? George Bernard Shaw says democracy is the vice and ensures the people are govern no better than they deserve. D democracy requires some skin in the game. Yes. Uh, and you've got to want, it's got to be your idea. So I, I hearken back to the, the um, second Iraq war and the idea that you could export democracy like it was a pair of Nikes or something. And that's just not possible. You, the, the people, it's going to fail. If the people don't want democracy, it will, it will inevitably fail, will it not? I absolutely believe that you cannot export democracy. You can't force democracy. You can't tell people, all right, you're going to be a democracy. I believe that 100%. But what I also believe is in every single country, every single country, people want to live freely. They do. I have never, I've traveled to 80 different countries. I have never run into someone who says, you know what? I am really great with the idea of this government telling me I can't worship. 
I love the idea that they're telling me I have to worship. I love the idea that they're going to break down my door, take my husband, and he's going to be disappeared for the next six years. Nowhere in the world do people want to live without a protection of their rights. So then the question becomes, okay, if this is a universal longing, what is the right place for the United States or any democratic government? I would argue our best place is to recognize that that is a universal longing around the world, and we should support the people in those countries in realizing what they choose and what they want. I And I think that is where you know the organization I work for, many others are looking to say, let's listen to the people on the ground. They are loudly, loudly calling for freedom. And what can we do to stand with them? And I'll just give you an example. L look at a country like Iran. People are going to the streets. They are being imprisoned, murdered, raped, tortured. They're, they're not doing that because anyone asked them. They're doing it. They're putting their lives on the line because they desperately, desperately want the protection of their rights the same way many people enjoy them around the world. And if we see that in Venezuela and Cuba and Iran and Belarus and many other countries, Sudan, Ethiopia, so many other countries, we need to stand with them, not impose, not export, not not force, but say, we're listening and we're, we're not leaving you alone. We're standing in solidarity with you. And I think that's the best way for us to think about our posture towards towards these folks around the world who are who are asking for that freedom. I uh, realize uh, the risk of sounding partisan, and I and I know it's 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 um, to people to not show their partisanship will say you know both sides are guilty, but when we start looking at, I mean, there's partisan politics, but when we start looking at who's standing outside the Democratic guardrails, yeah, as I see it, um, I won't put you on the spot. As I see it, that's just one political party right now that has decided that their raison d'etre is going to be outside those democratic guardrails, being the Republican Party. Um, can two parties survive? I mean, how can two parties survive when one's outside the guardrail? Because even even one stays inside the guardrails, aren't aren't they at best mediocre? You can't. The United States can't function with one party outside the guardrail. You know, I would I would look at the fact that we have a lot of independence in this country, and I think that we have a lot of diversity within each political party. And I think that's really important for us to say, you know, and I had a conversation earlier with a colleague who said, can we even say bipartisan anymore? <laughs> or do we need to look across the spectrum of what is the diversity of the political landscape of the United States? I would argue there is a very, very healthy middle that believes in democracy and that you have extremes that are outside of commitment to democracy, right? And so in that sense, I would say what we need to do is how do we shore up the leaders within both parties who want to who want to be committed to democracy, who are committed to democracy, get them to be louder and stronger in defense of our democracy. They don't have to agree on policy issues. They don't have to agree on immigration and foreign policy. They do need to agree on protecting our system. Those leaders do exist on both sides of the aisle, I firmly believe. And we need to shore them up to work in unison, to, to pass legislation, to work together, to shore up our system. Because if we go down, we all go down together, regardless of what side we've been on. And there are very 
real illiberal forces in our country, very real ones. And what we have to do is say the the dividing line between us doesn't have to be left and right as much as it has to be people who are committed to democracy and people who are not committed to democracy. I am confident that the majority are those ones that are committed to democracy. So we've just got to figure out the way to work together to push back on those illiberal actors. Well, I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't ask you my next question. I want to ask you, how do we push fast? And she said, we've got to figure that out. I won't, I won't pressure on that. However, when you look at right now, uh, my words, um, the two leading candidates for, to replace Kevin McCarthy as speaker, um, uh, Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio has definitely um, displayed some illiberal ir- ir- sensibilities. And Steve Scalise, who, who has self-identified as David Duke without the baggage, that doesn't exactly bode well for America's democratic future. I think that the House of Representatives will have a choice in the type of leadership that they want to have. And they need to think about leaders first and foremost, and I won't comment on this two specific candidates. There are plenty sure. of people, right? When all of us, whether it is someone choosing the Speaker of the House, whether it is us going to the ballot box, whether it's me voting in my local, you know, school board, we have to think about we're 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 all we're every time we vote, every time in everything, we're voting on a couple different things. We're voting, of course, for the policies or the positions of an individual, absolutely, but we're also voting on their commitment <laughs> to our democracy, and we're also voting on their competence as leaders. All of those things are factors. And what I think all of us need to think about, this is this is not just the speaker, this is not just 2024, 2022, 2016, 2020. This is about all of us going every time we choose to give voice and power to a leader, we've got to think, are they going to shore up our democracy in addition to are they going to represent the views that I um that I hold on immigration or healthcare or foreign policy? That's that is the power that each of us has as individuals. We are a we are a nation of 330 million people. We have a rich diversity of talented people. We just need to find those. Um, and we all have the voice through the ballot box to choose those who are going to to yeah, both shore up our democracy as well as advance policies that each of us individually want to see move forward. You know, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted, I wanted to be in discussion with you on this topic is because I'm old enough to remember there was a time where there's always been disagreement, but that large swath that you refer to have been, in a macro sense, on the same sheet of music. Yeah. Um, since 1988, the uh, Republican Party has won the popular vote for president once since 88. Um, and were it not for electoral college, you could uh, Democrats would currently uh, would be the dominant party in terms of presidential elections uh, over the past three decades. But uh, I read a Carnegie Endowment um, poll: seventy-two percent of Republicans, twenty-six percent of Democrats, independents. I'm sorry, don't believe that President Biden was victorious. Explain not. I'm not asking you to adjudicate that, but explain why holding that belief in 2023 is a threat to democracy. It is a huge threat to democracy. Um, President Biden won the election free and fair according to all the rules. And here's here's an important thing. 
We also have ways in our system where people can challenge if they believe there is fraud and challenges were made and they were all deemed not to have been the case. So for people who say, well, this whole thing was stolen, there were challenges and they went through a system and the system said, great, we heard you. And there was no fraud. He was free and fairly elected. And that is an absolute truth in our society. Here's a challenge. We have a broken infrastructure of information in our nation. We have a bifurcated, it might be tri or multifurcated. <laughs> we have a bifurcated um, media environment in which people are getting information from sources that are reinforcing the narrative that they choose to share and we have leaders who are intentionally manipulating the media environment in order to advance their political gain. That is deeply problematic because a democracy must have shared truths and healthy information flow in order for us to work together and to have a healthy democracy. That to me is one of the greatest threats that we have, which is this broken information system, but also the continued perpetuation of a lie that the 2020 election was stolen. And we need to look to leaders who, who are going to um, be very honest about the fact that President Biden was freely and fairly elected and that we have to trust the system because the system worked and the system is not there to produce what each of us wants. The system is there to have a level playing field, to have each vote um, to be counted according to our system and for, for the system to produce a winner. And that happened in 2020. You just touched on something in the last sentence I, I want to pick up on. You, you used the term media, which in my view is a catch-all for a lot of things. <laughs> yes. it, it could be the New York Times. It could be someone, it could be someone blogging in their basement. Um, talk about the impact that, that we're almost, when it comes to that term media, we're almost in this whole wildcatting atmosphere and some of those uh, mediums, platforms have guidelines. Some don't. Facebook doesn't have don't have doesn't have the same guidelines as say NPR or the New York Times or Washington Post. So isn't that another burden that we've never ever had to confront before in terms of our uh, democratic tradition? There's a really important role that we as a society have to take on, which is we are creating democratic citizens. And that's a shared responsibility. Let me give an example. I've got three kids. They've gone through the school system. I have watched the great schools as they have taught my kids about biology and ecology. That's the science behind it. But they've also taught my kids, and I have hopefully reinforced it at home, that you've got to be a great citizen for our, a steward of our environment. You can't litter. You can't, you got to turn off your lights. You can't use too much electricity. All of that is the stewardship that goes with that science. We need to think about the same on the democracy side. We are rightfully and excellently teaching our kids about checks and balances, about three branches of government that a president is elected every four years. All of those details about our structure are very important, but we can't stop there. That stewardship part has to go with 
the structure and what we're teaching our kids in, in, in civil, you know, in civics, what we have to be teaching our kids. And this is through our kids. This is our universities. These are our civil society organizations. There are characteristics of being in a democracy and being a responsible democracy, a steward of our democratic um, system. So what does that mean? I've got to learn how to be in civil debate with someone I don't agree with. I've got to be in committed to protecting our democratic system, not because it gives me what I want, but because there is inherent value in a system which allows me to compete and allows someone who I don't agree with to compete. And sometimes my candidate wins, sometimes his candidate wins. I've got to be committed to those values and those um, principles of being a democratic system citizen and that we've got to be naming those values and and imprinting them on all of our citizens and saying it's not about every position you hold it's about protecting the system that allows you and protects you to hold that position and you're going to live in a society with people you don't agree with but us coming together to protect everyone's rights, to protect everyone's voice and protect that structure that allows us to live in a pluralistic society. That's what we've got to be training everybody, particularly our next generation, because they're going to be stewarding our country forward. With that said, how do we get here? How did we get to where we are or how do we move forward? Yeah, how, how do we now, that, that comes next. I, I won't put you on the spot there. How do we get here? How do we get to this present moment? Uh. Yeah, I look, I, I will say it is inherent in every person to want more power and to want um, not to submit to a system that um, that gives voice to people that you don't want to have voice. I think that's human nature, right? It, it, to me, I'm not surprised that there are people who want to tear down our democracy in order for their own personal or political gain. That's not surprising to me. That's human nature. So what we have done is we have failed to check those people. <laughs> we have failed to step in and utilize the existing power that each of us as citizens and we as civil organizations to check those behaviors. Because what we have to recognize is a democracy is not singularly about my side winning. A democracy is about protecting a system which allows my side to compete. And we have had this shift and this tilt of leaders and citizens saying, you know what? I'm actually gonna go for the thing that gets me the power. I'm gonna go for tearing down the system because I want my outcome. And we haven't had sufficient number of people and institutions and leaders to push back on that. Um, so I'll preempt your question, which is how do we get that? Same way we got, but backwards. We need leaders. We as citizens need to vote for leaders. And we all can choose to lead in our communities in a way that is first and foremost protecting our democratic system, because we know that is the system that is going to allow me to advance the things which I want. Um, that's going to be important. We can choose that. We can choose to reverse this decline that we've seen in the United States, but it is going to take citizens and civic groups and individual leaders to take that back. It's possible. When I think about what we have accomplished in this country to overcome where we have fallen so short of our democratic values, I, I, I'm amazed. When I look back at what Dr. King and the civil rights movement accomplished, we can do this 
but it is going to take citizens, it's going to take individual leaders, and it's going to take courage for us to choose to reverse the decline which we have allowed to happen. Um, one, of the, one of the things that seems like all Democrats and some even some Republicans share, um, and it's a concern of mine, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Are you concerned that I asked you earlier, how do we get to this place? Are you concerned that there's too much blame being placed on former President Trump as if he is the sole reason? And are we simplifying the problem when we make that assertion? I think it is a simplification because I don't think one individual is is a nation. <laughs> I think the, there are many sources of um of challenges to our nation and when we look at political polarization that is because people are choosing to be polarized they are choosing to consume information that makes them more polarized they are choosing to look at their neighbors or people who look look differently think differently act differently assuming that they are not as uh as don't deserve equal rights or don't have equal voice or or are of a lower moral character because they have a different view. That is fundamentally at odds with a democracy. I disagree with a lot of people, but I respect that they have a right to hold the views that they view because I believe in a democracy, their views are protected as mine are. And we're losing that. And that is, that is something that all of us are choosing. And so I think we really have to look at, it, at the challenges we're facing as a, as a societal problem as a full problem that we we both have the the responsibility to address, but we have the ability to address, and that's going to be an important reckoning and and um, for for all of us to take back in our society. Immediate gratification, in my view, is is uh, often the expectation when it comes to American democracy that. Um, so assuming that repairing American democracy is indeed a possibility, um, are, are we not several cycles, election cycles away, along with the prolonged adherence um, to those democratic guardrails that you're talking about, to get this thing fixed? I mean, this is not something that's going to happen in 2024. Am I right? Yes. I, I Yes, you are absolutely right. There is not a, a quick fix ever to democracy. I like to liken democracy to my health or your health. I can't say, oh, I worked out today. I'm good. We're done. <laughs> it is all day, every day, the discipline that I have to exercise in my health to eat right, to exercise, to, you know, take time for sleep, all of that. It, I have to do that every single day. And likewise, in a democracy, we have to practice the values of democracy every day. We can't say, oh, I was civil one day or I voted one day and so we're done. We have to be diligent about who we vote for and how we exercise our political rights every single day. How do we show up as a nation? How are we in our conversations and how we're showing up in our civil groups, in our political parties every single day in a way that upholds our democracy as well as advances our personal interests? And when we think that we can be one and done, on upholding democracy is when we fail. It is a constant, uh, it's a constant diligent posture that we have to have to ensure that our democracy 
is strong. And the minute we think we're done <laughs> is the minute that we allow the possibility of deterioration or complacency. You mentioned um, Dr. King and Frederick Douglass by mm -hmm. name earlier. And I'm wondering, is, is part of the elephant in the room uh, today in our democratic challenges is also um, aligned with the fact that there is an increasingly browning of America and such challenges threaten my words, the social construct of whiteness. Is that part, is that also uh, influencing this dilemma in your view? We have a horrific history and we have a glorious history. I say horrific because the fact that on this land where I can walk today, people were enslaved and denied every single uh, degree of their humanity and their dignity and their rights is a part of our history. We also have a glorious history because we have overcome so many obstacles, but I do not think that we are in any way done. And I don't think that that battle is done. I think what we are going to see is to what extent can we find unity as a nation in our democratic identity in democratic identity, meaning not the party democratic identity. What it means is that we all find that what unifies us is that we live in a country where we respect the rights and the ability of everyone to participate in a society, whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not, whether you look like them or not, whether you worship like them or not, that is going to be the real litmus test. And I am confident that we have many people in our country who believe in that democratic identity. And I know that we have people who don't. And what the challenge that lies before us is to what extent are those of us who believe in our democratic, little d, democratic identity, our, our identity in democracy, going to take that so seriously that we will put that above any other identity, country before party, and we will send a very clear signal that we want a country in it that is a democracy where all people, where all people share the same rights. That is the challenge that lies before us. Now, one of the things I've, I've been wondering um, is when I look at this, our current dilemma, and I share, I share your concerns. When I look at this current dilemma, I wonder, I'm not advocating this, I wonder do we need more people um, to be uh, become de facto Democrats? And that does not hold the Democratic Party as paragons of virtue. But if a party, um, how do you get one party to get back inside the guardrail? I'm, I'm not even, we're past policy differences. I just, I just want them back in the guardrail. I just want them inside the ring, in the arena. Um. So I think that there are people in both parties that are in the arena. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. We have seen we have seen leadership in both parties being in the in the arena. So I don't think it's an entire party and nor do I think it's an entire swath of the United States um, according to what their political party is. What I think we need to do is have a very real conversation across party lines, across ideological lines to say, can we stand together to prioritize protection of democracy, 
while we debate our political differences. I firmly believe people have called it the exhausted middle, <laughs> the exhausted middle, which inherently means some people on the left, some people on the right. I believe that there is an exhausted middle, which is truly sick of lots of the polarization and the division and is saying, okay, we need to come together. I think what we need to do is cultivate that conversation and to say, how can we come together, except that we're gonna have political differences on policy issues, and to say, we will align to protect our democracy. We saw some of that, some of that after January 6th, where you saw people, you didn't see enough of it, but you saw people condemning the greatest threat to the to uh, political violence to our democracy in, in generations, like that is where you come together and you say, we will not accept that. It doesn't matter if you're left or right or Republican or Democrat. We will not accept those threats to our democracy. And that's where we have to capitalize on unity around us having a system not to agree on each other, on everything, but a system that protects our right to voice what we disagree about. Well, um, what I would what I would say back to you in response, I certainly appreciate that. Um, and again, what I'm about the example I'm about to give you, have you comment on, is wasn't anything unconstitutional by any stretch. But I have I have friends on both sides of the aisle, and there's not one of my Republican friends who would accept um, if say Chuck what Chuck Schumer did to get the six three Supreme Court majority, you know that pattern starting with the death of. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, um, and that not having enough time to confirm someone before the election, and then fast tracking uh, Amy Coney Barrett to, to ultimately turn row. There's not a single Republican, if Chuck Schumer did, that would accept that. That's what I mean by stepping outside the guardrail. There, there comes a point to where everybody's got to say, even you've got to be able to critique your side. And I'm wondering, do we have the civic maturity to critique our side, wherever it may go, you know what, that's a bridge too far. Or does it just get back to what you were saying earlier? You know what, this is a zero-sum game now. My, my side, is, I'm okay with that. We need to build and grow that civic maturity. That is exactly the term. And that starts with everyone policing their side and the other side and policing it with the integrity to say, I'm not policing this because I disagree with you. I am policing it because I care about my democracy. And I don't, I'm not as concerned about the actor I'm caring about, I'm concerned about the action, which is undermining the democracy. And I will call it out wherever I see it. When I was growing up, <laughs> there used to be confirmations that were largely 99% now we are seeing, and I'm saying confirmations, not just for Supreme Court, but for our ambassadors and for all, where people are voting every single time down the line, according to their party. What we are losing to some extent is the, the respect of the right of a president or the right of others to exercise what is in law, their right to appoint judges or their right to appoint um, you know, ambassadors or others. And we're making those things political issues. Now, I'm fully supportive if there is a person who is not, you know, who has a criminal record or is not a constitutional scholar or or knowledgeable or or not equipped to be in a position, fully understand that. But we have now turned every 
um, every opportunity into a political one. And this is where we have to practice that civic maturity to say, there is a point in which I am undermining the system. And then there's a point in which I am advocating for my political views. And those do not have to be the same in every situation. And where we, and the broad we, are undermining the system in order to advance our, our, our partisan agenda, which all of us have, um, is where we are slowly contributing to that decay of our system. Nicole, Bob, Mr. Docker, I want to thank you so much. I'm sorry, let me come and go back. I said Bob is Bibbins. Nicole Bibbins, Sadaka, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the public rally. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for creating this space, Byron. I really appreciate it.